Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with Dirk Johnson, CMU's new director of vocal ensembles. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so classical has always been a love of yours. In fourth grade, you started the violin, and then you also trained in piano. You moved to choir, and then um, your whole life has just really been one big musical, it sounds like. Uh, you're from Great Falls, Montana. That's right. And how did you get started in into the music world? Were your parents musicians? So my parents are both um, not professional musicians, but grew up doing music. My dad studied some piano growing up, uh, classically. And my mom did less formal study, but actually was a piano teacher uh, as I was growing up. She was trained as an educator and taught elementary school music for several years. And so a great teacher and a decent pianist. And she put those two skills together and did some teaching there. So it was a musical household. It was an academic household. And so we all ended up playing instruments. And But of all my, I'm from a family of five boys. And we're all musicians and really love music. But I was the one who probably grabbed hold from the youngest age, uh, getting involved in it. And it was actually uh, exposure to um, the music of Mozart that got me started. Uh, This was back in the day when Amadeus was... uh, it had come out in theaters, and my family watched it at home, and I was just sitting there as a five- or six-year-old kid, and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. So it was really kind of love at first listen in the classical music world, and so I listened a lot up until fourth grade, when I could finally start in the schools, the violin, so... That's great. I mean, it kind of makes me think of the sound of music, right? Like the household, <laughs> how the whole family is just singing and playing music. And it really is just, yeah, music household, just as you kind of described it. Is that is that what your house is like now as a grown up with kids of, of your own? Yeah. So I have six of children of my own. The oldest is a senior. The youngest is a first grader. And um, we just end up doing a lot of singing, sort of, I think, unintentionally. My wife's a great singer, and she's an instrumentalist as well. So we don't do a lot of formal training in our house, but the kids are very involved in their school music programs. But there is music always being played, or uh, either by Alexa or on instruments. But my wife and I just both kind of sing around the house. And so singing is definitely just part of what humans do in my house. And I think that's unique to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, and what was it like, you know, growing up in Montana and, you know, moving from violin to piano and then really finding your voice, if you will? Yeah. So I grew up in a town uh, out on the plains about the size of Grand Junction. So two large high schools and established music programs and um, really strong music programs. So there was a good culture in the schools uh, for musical development. Uh, But that's right. I started as a violinist. Actually, I started as a learning some piano before fourth grade um, and did that through eighth grade and then kind of laid that aside and violin took over for uh, a good long while up until really the end of my senior year where I decided that I would uh, pursue a degree focused on choral singing and choral music Um, because in addition to playing violin I had sung in the high school choir and we had a really strong high school choir the Delphian Choir um, and a great great director of that choir, Paul Ritter, and um, again, Linda Lydiard, these are just big names in my life, um, was the orchestra director. And um, and so I had decided by the end of high school to go ahead and direct choirs instead of direct orchestras. You know, I, I just really can't get over like this. I can't sing at all. Like if I, if I tried, you all would be sounds like, like a challenge to any choral director. <laughs> just stop. Um, how do you 
I don't know. How did you learn to find your voice and how did you tweak it to, to make it better? You know, I know that that's part of your, your job now is to really look at, you know, how someone's singing and try to find their, their best voice or their, yeah, who they are within that voice. Sure. Great question. Learning an instrument is, it's, I mean, it has, it's full of nuance, but it's also concrete in as much as you can see what's going on. Singing's interesting because all of, most of it's internal. It's hard to, it's just challenging that way. Um, and I actually, uh, in singing in high school choir, I did take some uh, private voice lessons from a great teacher named Mary Moore, but I was not an opera singer at all. I didn't sing with any vibrato. So I really, in going into college, was a much better violinist than singer. So I really had a long way to go in developing my voice and learning how to relax the right things and not relax the, the wrong things. And um, a lot of that just came from listening to some really great classical singers and falling in love with that literature, art song especially, uh, certainly uh, opera as well. But it was a long and slow uh, pro- progression for me to be able to claim sort of the mantle of solo singer. Um, again, violinist, I could do a whole lot with. Um, but that puts me in a little bit of a unique situation in that I had to overcome a lot of vocal faults. Therefore, as a, a teacher of other students and someone working with lots of amateur singers, it maybe has given me uh, somewhat of a unique way of relating to them and understanding their struggles. And, uh, and you know, at this point, I've done some professional choral singing and I've got an instrument that, that works well. Um, but it was a progression. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you, you know, work with a group of people so they sound good together? Because I'm sure there are people out there where you're like, you're beautiful, you're good on your own, but when you get in a group, it just doesn't work. Sure. Um, So I taught junior high and I taught high school and now I'm working with college students. And I've also worked with uh, adults and retired singers. So kind of run the gamut. Uh, The first step, of course, and I'm thinking of a lot of my middle school teaching is finding a, a pitch that everybody can sing in tune together. Uh, and some choirs, that's easy. Some choirs, that's hard. So that's always sort of the starting point is how do you get everybody on the same note? There are lots of little tricks to that. Um, it's especially hard when you're working with the changing voice, you know, a bunch of seventh grade guys. Um, but I don't have that experience here at CMU. Um, I work with mostly experienced singers or those who have sung in choirs before. And um, we do have a variety of, of skill levels and different choirs, but um, they're really not starting just from scratch like when I was teaching seventh grade. So yeah, we all get in the same room and you, a lot of the search is finding the music that, that everybody can uh, sound good on together and the difficulty there. Um, but yeah, once they're all in the room, we every day we work on some vocal warm-ups and develop the voice where most we're singing in octaves or unison and exploring all different aspects of, of the singing art from breathing and posture uh, to resonance and something called phonation, which is how your vocal folds are actually working and, and how much muscular tension's involved. And so it can get pretty technical um, and there's lots of things to it. And, um, and, but I certainly like that process of building the voices in that group setting. So much of what we benefit from here at CMU is the work of our private voice teachers. We have a lot of music majors and minors, and that's really where they're getting some really hands-on specific instruction. So the choirs benefit a great deal from that, from those teachers. And do you think anyone can be a great singer? Do you think it's learned, or are you kind of born with it, and then it's shaped? I think you and I need to get together to have this interview, and we'll just, we'll work on this now. <laughs> um, 
Well, there are always aptitudes in, in areas, but I have learned and I've been taught as well um, that most people can learn to sing. Uh, there are a lot of people who have never really figured out the coordination of the muscles of their larynx and their vocal folds with the pitches that they're hearing kind of from the outside. And if you can link up those, those pitch muscles um, to the ear, as soon as people sort of latch onto that and get some basic coordination, then they all of a sudden have some confidence to give it a shot. So much of it is just getting through that initial um, feeling of, I just can't do it. I'm just not a singer. Um, I just know that. Um, but again, it's, it's easier to catch them young because they haven't created this identity of, I just don't sing. A lot of times there's someone who just said something offhanded when they're a third grader and they have sort of clammed up from their singing voice for the rest of their lives. So um, that was one rewarding aspect of teaching junior high. You're sort of re, um, restoring some confidence and, um, and building some of that back up. But yes, I do think that the vast majority of people can learn to sing. Um, it's just getting that initial hookup together. And a lot of kids get that if they sing around the house when they're really young and uninhibited. If that is not your experience, um, you got to pick it up somehow and somewhere. But it's never too late. Hey, maybe I'll get brave and come knock on your door. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> get some voice lessons. Moss 126. Just knock anytime. <laughs> uh, you know, you are new to Grand Junction and Colorado for that matter. You're from West, or you've been living in West Virginia for um, a while now. That's right. Um, why did you make the transition to, to Colorado and how's it been so far? We've really loved it. It's been a busy year. So in that respect, it's... Um, has it has had its stresses however we really do love the region uh, we love the area i was like i said i was born in great falls montana kind of just due north of here but not far from the mountains much like grand junction and my wife is from just north of salt lake city utah and that's where we met is out in utah and i lived there for 10 years that's where i did my middle school and high school teaching and did my first two degrees at uh, brigham young university so really I'm a Mountain West guy, and for me, it's returning home, and it is for my wife as well. We now have family just four hours away in Utah, and we're no longer 31 hours from my parents in Montana. We're just a short 12, so we love the region. We had looked for opportunities sort of along the way to um, make it back here, possibly, but West Virginia sure became home, too. It's a beautiful place. So, um, yeah, but Grand Junction's been very welcoming. Our kids, as a whole, have adapted well, and... Uh, they're still West Virginians, but they're getting used to the place. <laughs> yeah, and I know that you um, have recently discovered a, a, an old passion of yours, right? You kind of stopped playing violin for, what, 25 years? That's right. Yeah, as an 18-year-old, if I had ever heard that stat, I would have thought it was someone else's life. But um, I just got busy with degrees and invested more heavily in piano and voice development. And, and sometimes it's just hard to find a place where you get to play again. Um, and so that has been really fun for me this spring semester. I have a great uh, orchestral and violin colleague, Brian Creaky, who um, conducts the CME String Orchestra. And he caught wind that I had played long, long ago. And um, I did play uh, quite high level as a high school student um, and had performed with our local symphony in uh, Great Falls, Montana. A lot of uh, sort of solid uh, standard orchestral rep. Um, but then again, I laid that aside as I headed off to college, but uh, here I've had a chance to pull it out again. And in fact, uh, Dr. Krinky loaned me one of his spare violins just to make it happen. So I'm really grateful to him. And the students have been very welcoming. 
I was really, really rusty after 25 years, and it's starting to feel like something I know how to do again. But the students have been patient. Um, the section, they've given me some pointers and um, just patted me on the shoulder and said, it's going to be okay. <laughs> I love it. You're supporting them. They're supporting you. You're teaching them. They're giving you new tips. So. That's right. <laughs> the choral students, they haven't really heard me play, so they keep on saying, hey, you need to come play for us. But that's code for, we don't really believe you actually know how to play this instrument. <laughs> <laughs> or we want to point fun at you for That'd a little be, while. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So. I, you know, you also uh, write music. You're a composer, which that's is right. really incredible. Can you talk about how you got into that? And um, I, I mean, I can't even fathom writing a writing a anything. <laughs> right. For me, the title composer is um, sort of this this mythical beast, right? Um, these are the people who are the the, the creators of what other people do. Um, kind of a daunting a mantle to assume. And I did some writing in, in elementary school. There was a reflections contest. It was an artist, artist contest. People would submit drawings and paintings. And so I wrote a couple songs and wor- earned some uh, national sort of uh, honorable mentions through that program. And, but uh, after sixth grade, I really didn't write. I just got involved in learning instruments. And, um, and so it was really college music theory classes where... I sort of figured out that I had a, a strong aptitude for that skill. Um, ear training courses, which all music majors take, were kind of a breeze for me. It's not like I worked harder than anybody else. It's just, hey, I can hear that. I know what that is. And that's one of the sort of key traits that a composer needs. So I started writing, actually, when I started working with students as a teacher. I would arrange the vocal parts uh, so that I could adapt it to the various middle school choirs. So it was mainly vocal writing. I had a great course in choral arranging as well as part of my studies, which really, again, I in that class, I was like, oh, I can actually do this. It's not something I just did as a sixth grader, but you know, I can. I kind of have an aptitude for this. And then the rest has kind of been history, but most of the time I've had to do it has been while teaching. West Virginia, I did a lot of writing for those choral groups out there, for my own groups and for a community group. I've written pieces for friends around the country. And um, I started mainly doing arranging, which is where you have a tune, and then you um, create music around that. So it's its own subset of composition. Um, But then I've branched out more into original composition as well. And um, yeah, again, it's like anything, you, you have to at some point put your foot down and say, yep, I am a composer. Again, that mythical beast again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this point, I've written over 35 pieces and um, have uh, had a piece published by uh, Walton Music, which is a, a really sort of high-end choral uh, publisher. So, yeah, I Amazing. compose. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I've i heard, you know, people in the industry, they can say, oh, yes, this is a hit song. I know it. And they're right. So what mm-hmm. makes a what makes a good song? What makes a hit song? Why do we all love a certain tune? Right. I often jest that um, all the, the world-famous choral directors and choral uh, music composers, we don't... Uh, we don't really write the hits with a capital T and a capital H. Um, we're usually striving for something slightly different than that, but I, it's still a great question. Um, what makes a great choral piece? And that's, you know, it's certainly complicated uh, in terms of, in fact, I will drive my wife crazy because I'll just play the same chord 10 different times in slightly different voicings on the piano and trying to figure out what sounds just the best. And she'll just say, pick one of those things. You know, we got stuff to do. <laughs> so um, 
And then it certainly depends on the audience, too. So you can write a beautiful piece that will appeal to a smaller subsection, sort of the connoisseurs, or you can write something that you know is just more of toe-tapping, more appealing. The side that I write of that is folk music, folk arrangements, because that music just immediately appeals to um, a wide variety of humans, or that's what makes it folk music. People like to sing it. So that's usually the stuff that um, is sort of the funnest yeah, that I end up composing. And the other things are, you know, you find a great text, and what makes a really successful piece is something that really expresses the meaning of that text, and also um, the syntax of the text as well. Before we were recording, we had talked about the pedagogy of mm-hmm. um, building an orchestra. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, the pedagogy of, uh, at least in the choral world, of uh, working with and, and building choirs Um, There's a famous choral director, his name's Dale Worland, and my doctorate, I had the opportunity to work with him for a full quarter and serve as his assistant for one of the choirs. Um, And he, uh, when he would go around the country with his professional chorus, which is, by all standards, one of the best professional choirs in the country, he would ask this question, what makes a great choir? Is it the conductor? Is it the instrument, which would be like the singers in the choir? Or is it the music? the repertoire that is chosen for the choir. And people would always have varying opinions, and he would emphatically state it's the music that you choose. So that's really the first step and maybe the most important step in the pedagogy of choir, is finding those pieces that match the abilities of the singers so that when they make an honest attempt, it sounds good afterwards. but also pieces that stretch the singers, too. You don't want it to be too easy or too hard. And I've been ta- thinking a lot about this this last week because I'm teaching choral methods, and this is exactly what we've been talking about the last three sessions is where to find great music. Um, then you also you need to find texts that appeal to the students that they can relate to emotionally, you know, uh, based on their own maturity. And then you have to find stuff that is really singable, you know, things that, that they enjoy uh, and last but not least, it has to be something that's fun to work on for two months, because that's usually the scope of things. So I guess I side with Dale Orland and say the biggest step is finding the right music for the ensemble. And then you do warm-ups and you build those skills and um, sort of on top of that. But uh, they just need that central thing to rally around as a group of disparate you know, humans. And the music's really that. Yeah, I love how collaborative it is, and it really does make a difference having each individual person play their part. That's very true. Yeah, this, and I think in the choral world, that's one of the reasons I decided to do choral. I think instead of instrumental, is it's even one step further in terms of collaborative because um, uh, because a lot of skills that some singers have, other people sort of rely on because the pitch is just sort of out there. It's you just have to use your ear. There's also no seating, you know, there's no concert master of a, a choir. It's just y'all bunch of tenors, right? And we're all just working together, and it's sort of a democratic process in the, in the choral world. Maybe even more so than the instrumental world, though. I love that world, too. Yeah. And you transitioned, you know, from being a musician. You're still a musician, if you will, um, to teaching. And you said you've always wanted to teach. It was always something that was in your future. Yeah, that's... A, a young musician does have 
a decision to make. Uh, at least I I did. Is am I going to focus my career on teaching or am I going to focus it on performing? Uh, these days, there's lots of other avenues to go. The business side, you know, the sound engineering. There's lots of aspects of music you can go into. But my grandfather was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. Teaching was really revered in my house. So I think every last day of school, I would be walking home from school and thinking, I'm going to teach first grade. And I walk home second grade. I'm going to teach second grade. I guess the last thing I graduated from was high school. And I love music, and I'm going to teach high school music. So, but I do remember an application I filled out as a, a ninth grader for a music scholarship. I said, I'm going to be a high school uh, strings teacher. So I did know and decide really early that I was going, I wanted to pursue music. This was, I think, by the time I was starting violin in fourth grade, it was such a big part of my identity. Um, but then I always wanted to be a teacher. So it was a pretty easy decision for me what path to go, and I certainly haven't regretted it. Well, Dirk Johnson, we're so glad that you are a part of our CMU family. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the CMU Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.